Good day. Welcome to the One Year Bible Tour Guide. It's May 3rd. My name is David McAdam, pastor and Bible teacher at New Life Community Church in Concord, Massachusetts, and the producing director of New Life Fine Arts that produces theater you can believe in and who will be hosting the Summer Christian Musical Theater Camp for Youth, ages 8 through 18, this summer. And details can be found about that on our website, newlifefinearts.org or newlife.org. In today's reading from the One Year Bible in the Old Testament, we're going to be seeing the parallels between the moral relativism in our culture today with that which is found in the book of Judges, when everyone does what seems right in their own eyes. In contrast to this, we will be getting to the absolute purity of truth coming from the mouth of Jesus of Nazareth as he speaks to Nicodemus of the lost condition of humankind and its need to be healed of the fatal disease of sin by looking to the saving work of Christ on the cross and being born again or born from above by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll read about that in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. So let's get started with the Old Testament reading first, the book of Judges, chapters 17 and 18. We start with Judges, chapter 17, verse 1, Micah and the Levite. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The one thousand one hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the one thousand one hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand to my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now therefore I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took two hundred pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite as priest. Chapter 18 In those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtaol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, 
they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to him, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish, and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth, and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians, and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So six hundred men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and went up and encamped at kiriath Jearim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of kiriath Jearim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, and came to the house of Micah. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. 
It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. And this is the end of our reading from the book of Judges. It's sad but true. There were idolatries in the Old Testament practiced by the covenant people of God. There was moral relativism in the period of the Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Judges chapter 17 verse 6 and chapter 21 verse 25. Historian and biographer Paul Johnson author of Modern Times, noted in an interview the disturbing similarities between the period of the judges in which every man did what was right in his own eyes and the moral relativism of today. He observes that after World War I, streams of thought converged that unduly advanced the concept of moral relativism. Einstein's theory of relativity in the physical sciences was hijacked by philosophers as if it gave credence to the relativity of all moral values, a supposition to which Einstein, who believed in the existence of moral absolutes, would have objected. Freudian psychology suggested that guilt could be done away with by the removal of any taboo consciousness underpinned by an absolute moral framework. On the political front, in 1917, Lenin advocated a revolutionary conscience which would replace the Judeo-Christian conscience based on moral absolutes. The revolutionary conscience would be changed on the basis of the needs of the political party. We see a similar trend in the book of Judges as the children of Israel abandon the revelation of God's holy character given in the law of Moses and forsake their calling to be a people who are in a covenant relationship with the eternal king. In chapter 17 of the book of Judges, we see how a man named Micah set up his own household religion in which he could freely worship his personal idols of choice, employ his own priest, as a coach and therapist to mediate the blessing of a personal peace and prosperity in his life. The story begins with a revelation of Micah's character. He has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. When he hears his mother speaking a curse on the one who has stolen her money, Micah decides to avoid the curse and return the money. His mother is grateful that he admitted his crime against her and vows to wholly dedicate the silver to the Lord and yet asks her son to violate the law of the Lord and make a carved image and a molten image and to take them into his household. She gives 200 pieces of the returned silver to a silversmith to have a carved image made and a silver idol cast in honor of her son. Micah makes a shrine in his home constructs his own sacred ephod, and then consecrates one of his sons to be his own personal priest. He builds his own personal self-styled spirituality, where he can do what is right in his own eyes. In the temple of Micah there was no law, no rod that budded, no manna, no ark of the covenant, no sacrifice for sin, and no priesthood. But Micah had what he wanted. He had his God where he wanted and when he wanted. He had his personal religion with a God who was easily accessible, made in his own image, who demanded no sacrifices, made no demands for personal holiness, and to whom he could easily relate. 
Eventually, a Levite from Bethlehem, Judah, a real professional priest having the right pedigree, came to the hill country of Ephraim and to Micah's house. Micah invited him into the house and hired him as his own personal stay-at-home priest. Micah was pleased to have someone recognized as a sanctioned religious professional from the tribe of Levi to give his prosperity gospel greater legitimacy in the eyes of others. Now that Micah had God on his side with his own personal shrine and his own personal priest, he had his own customized religion. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. Judges chapter 17, verse 13. Next we read about warriors that left their assignments in the real war to fight an unsanctioned war against the wrong enemy. Five warriors from the tribe of Dan went on a scouting mission to find a better place to settle than the one that the Lord had assigned to them. They were discontent with their lot because it would require trusting God to give them the strength to drive out the enemy and possess their inheritance. Rather than seeking to fulfill God's will and take the responsibility to claim what God had promised them, they sought a more convenient place where they could claim their own vision of their desired destiny and live their dream. They observed people living carefree lives, like the Sidonians, in the town of Laish. Although the men of Laish did not have any observable relationship to the one true God, they appeared to be peaceful, secure, and wealthy. In chapter 18, verse 7, they wanted that for themselves. When these warriors arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, they came to Micah's house and recognized the voice, and most likely the accent, of the Levite. They are curious to find out how he, a Levite, who had been assigned either service in the tabernacle or in one of the 48 cities, how did he become a professional minister in the household of Micah? The priest explains that he had been hired by Micah to serve his idol and wear his customized ephod, most likely without the twelve stones for the tribes of Israel upon it, and how he made his services available to Micah that he might have a blessing. In Judges chapter 18, verse 6, he had become Micah's personal prosperity coach. With six hundred warriors standing just outside the gate, the five warriors from Dan go to Micah's house and steal the carved image, the household gods, the sacred ephod, and the cast idol. In verse 17, when Micah's hired priest sees this, he asks what they are doing. As they explain their vision, they offer to hire him as their prosperity priest. They said to him, Be silent, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? In Judges chapter 18, verse 19, Micah's hired priest is happy to accept this promotion, so he leaves his former ministry in the temple of Micah and joins the men from Dan and all their stolen goods. Of course, Micah and some of his neighbors are furious that someone has taken their idols and their prosperity priest away. Without them, Micah says, I have nothing left. In Judges 18, verse 24, the Danites warn Micah to watch what he says or they will kill him. In verse 25, it is clear that there is no moral base to these thieving, murderous idol worshippers. Micah returns home where he must rebuild his personal religion. The tribe of Dan move to Laish, where they can live their dream without the one true God. They attack and kill all the inhabitants and burn Laish to the ground. There was no one to rescue the residents of the town. They rename the town Dan after themselves, or should we say, their ancestor Dan, the son of Jacob. They set up their idol and appoint Jonathan, a descendant of Moses through his son Gershom, to be their priest. The last verse is quite sad. 
So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. The prosperity cult of Micah has now spread and become a counterfeit religion in Israel. Now let's go to our New Testament reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This concludes our reading for today from the New Testament. Now let's take a few moments to reflect upon this very important passage. Nicodemus was reputedly one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem and a highly esteemed teacher of the law. As a Pharisee, he had studied the law, but was very intrigued by how Jesus made it come alive. He recognized the hand of God upon Jesus' life and ministry. We read of Nicodemus in three separate incidents in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, John chapter 7, verses 45 to 51, and John chapter 19, verses 39 to 42. This is the first mention of Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to have a private interview with Jesus at night. It is unannounced, unpublicized, and the result of stirrings within Nicodemus to gain a deeper understanding of the kingdom. Nicodemus credits Jesus as being a genuine teacher sent from God, although Jesus was not educated or ordained by the religious establishment. He wants to know how he can have the same quality of understanding and experience of God that Jesus has. Jesus replies by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, 
he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it clear that you cannot come into this understanding or experience through any religious discipline, acts of piety, good deeds, or the accumulation of religious knowledge. The new birth is a God-given happening in which we come alive to God with the life of God by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. It is a miracle that cannot be humanly induced. Someone asked John Wesley why he continually preached, You must be born again. His reply, Because you must be born again. You hear critics say that Jesus only mentioned being born again in this one instance and that it was in a private conversation. Therefore, it is not an essential component to the gospel. On the contrary, the experience of regeneration, personal conversion, or being born again by the Holy Spirit is found throughout the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 13, John chapter 1, verses 3 to 8, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, James chapter 1, verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and verse 23, 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 9, chapter 4, verse 7, and 1 John chapter 5, verses 1, 4, and 18. All of these scriptures refer to the new birth, regeneration, being born again. How is one born again? Jesus referred Nicodemus to an Old Testament story with which he would have been well acquainted in Numbers chapter 21. It prefigured the gospel message that, when believed, gives rise to the new birth happening. The new birth is more than a healing from a fatal disease. It is bringing a person dead in their sins to a new life, a deathless life, in Christ. The first step is to admit the problem. You have sinned against God. Jesus tells Nicodemus about the time when all the Israelites in the wilderness were smitten with the poisonous venom of serpent bites. It was a real problem. It mirrors the dilemma of the human race. It is a picture of all of us being smitten with the fatal disease of sin introduced to Adam's race by the serpent's lie which humanity continues to feed upon, that we can be our own gods without God. We all have violated God's law, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 verse 23. Secondly, we're to recognize that we cannot save ourselves. In Numbers chapter 21, no doctor could save those who were perishing because the doctors were also infected victims. The only cure for the Israelites perishing in the wilderness with this disease was for Moses to believe God's word and make a representative, a substitute, in brass, which speaks symbolically of judgment, in the likeness of a serpent, and lift it up on a pole. This speaks of recognizing the need for someone to stand in our place and take the curse that fell upon the children of the serpent's lie. Thirdly, we are to believe on the Lord Jesus, God's Son, as our substitute. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived without sin. He died the death that we should have died. He died taking the penalty for our sin. And He rose from the dead to offer us the forgiveness we don't deserve and the eternal life He deserves. And He offers it to us as a free gift in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. All who look to the serpent in faith were healed in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 6 to 9. Jesus explains the parallel to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. We are saved by looking to Jesus in humble trust, owning him as our Lord and Savior. We see him as God's answer to our need. We are all afflicted with the serpent's bite, which has brought us the sentence of death. We see Jesus, God's Son, lifted up on our behalf, made to be our representative in the likeness of sin. Fourthly, Jesus, our sin-bearing substitute, is also our wrath-bearer and wrath-remover. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus repeats the command, Believe. You have been given the light of the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Now come to the light. Turn from your sin, the darkness, and obey the gospel by surrendering your life to the Lordship of Christ. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. If you know the truth, that God loved the world in such a way as to provide Jesus as your sin-bearing substitute, dying on the cross and rising from the dead as a vindication of a successful accomplishment, now practice the truth by admitting your sin and your need for his saving work. Trust him as your Lord and Savior. Without him you are condemned under God's law. But by coming to the light and surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus, you are saved from the wrath of God against sin. You receive the Holy Spirit and thereby are born again. On that wonderful note, let's go to the book of Psalms, the Bible's songbook, in Psalm 104, verses 1 to 23. O Lord my God, you are very great. Psalm 104. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep, as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for the man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. 
The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. And this is the end of our reading from Psalm 104. We'll read the rest of the psalm tomorrow. You will have noticed that this psalm begins with the same exclamation as Psalm 103, which we read yesterday. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Tomorrow we will discover that both psalms end with this also, with a further exclamation in Psalm 104 to praise the Lord. This is what is called the envelope technique in poetry, conveying the idea that we shall never be done with the theme, in this case, the theme of praising the Lord. In Psalm 103, we praise God for His mercy. In Psalm 104, we praise God for His might. Psalm 103 expresses praise for His compassion towards His covenant people. Psalm 104 expresses praise for His glory and grace in creation. The psalmist praises God for the astral heavens, the atmospheric heavens, and the angelic heavens. He praises God for the world's oceans and all His works on land and sea. The psalmist obviously is a lover of nature and a lover of nature's creator. He expresses his sense of wonder and appreciation as a musical poet. The author of this psalm has been called the Wordsworth of the Ancients. Do you see the Lord clothed with splendor and majesty? Do you see him making the clouds his chariot? Do you see him walking upon the wings of the wind? I encourage you to meditate upon God's greatness as you read today's psalm. Now let's go to the book of Proverbs. The proverb a day keeps foolishness away. We're in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 20 and 21. The poor is disliked even by his neighbor, but the rich has many friends. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Proverbs are often to be read coupled together or juxtaposed upon each other to give greater meaning, such is the case here. Do you need some wisdom for relationships? We are called to be gracious and generous to the poor, but also mindful that those who are needy can wear out their benefactors. We know that we are not to despise our neighbor, but family, friends, and neighbors must mutually recognize that relationships that nourish, refresh, and provide greater gain are easier to handle and more sought after than those that make constant demands. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our idolatries and our self-styled religion. We praise you for the revelation of righteousness in your word, and we thank you for the written revelation that is so livingly embodied in your Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life of it. He has reconciled us to yourself and provided our deliverance from the curse of sin and death. Give us your eyes to see our neighbor as you see him. Give us your heart to love our neighbor the way you love him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that rounds up today's Bible reading, and we look forward to continuing tomorrow. It's such a blessing to be reading God's Word together and taking time to meditate upon it. Do let us know if there are ways that we can encourage you in your walk. You can contact us at podcast at newlife.org. And if you'd like to know more about New Life Community Church and its ministries, you can go to our webpage, newlife.org. Or you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at the One Year Bible Tour Guide. 
God bless you, and in the words of the psalmist, let everything that has breath praise the Lord.